Corinthians chapter 9 as we continue our study through the New Testament, currently in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this morning's message is the life of self-denial. The life of self-denial. In this world, and maybe many of us before we got saved, it was, it's pretty much a me generation, a me thing. I, myself, and I. It's all about me. And I remember before I got saved, I used to say, well, who's, if nobody takes care of me, who's going to worry about me? So I need to take care of myself. And I do what I wanted, got things I wanted to do, and just, you know, it's, it's all about me. And then when you come to Christ, Jesus puts a, a, a new spin on it, much better spin. He said, you know, if you desire to follow after me, deny yourself and follow me. And we see that it really is when we come to Christ. It's a call to die. When, you, when Christ calls us, it's a call to die. A call to die to ourself, to what we want, what we, cra- what we crave, and, and um, you know, to, to, to desire the things of Christ. And we see that through the scriptures. And here in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul starts with several rhetorical questions, which the answer is a definite yes. Now, what is a rhetorical question? Well, it's a question that's asked for effect, for emphasis, and, you know, and doesn't really require an answer. For example, if I say, man, it's 100 degrees outside, can you believe it? You know, and, and then, you know, well, well, yeah, I, mean, I can feel it. And, you know, so it just, you know, it, it's, it's just a really hot summer day. But, you know, do you feel that you need to answer the question? Probably not, because you're there. You can see the temperature. It's 100. It's hot. And, you know, all, all the things that, you know. But, um, again, uh, again, the question is asked for effect or emphasis. doesn't really require an answer. And in, in this instance, again, uh, you may say, uh, it's uh, give an answer simply to emphasize how hot it is. Now, the reason for the necessity of an affirmative answer, as Paul is looking for here, is due to the nature of the questions being asked with the absolute not that he mentioned several times in the beginning of the chapter. Now, attacking the minister of the gospel is a surefire way, a surefire tactic that's used by the enemies of the gospel. And it's used to discredit the minister of the gospel. And if you want to discredit something that somebody says, one of the best ways is to discredit the person who's saying it. We see that used in politics all the time. Somebody has a message. Guess what? We don't like the message. We don't want to hear that message because we want a different message. Attack the one giving the message. And if you can succeed in... in, in you know, again, making them look bad or her bad or whoever it might be, discrediting that person, well, and you get other people to believe it, then uh, that pretty much they'll discredit the message, whatever it is they have to say. Uh, and because if, again, if they can discredit the messenger or the minister of the gospel, then that makes the message of the gospel, which these ministers are proclaiming, look bad. Now, to, to counter these attacks that Paul was continually experiencing, he gives some credentials to support his ministry. 
And in chapter 8, Paul dealt with the subject of Christian liberty when it came to eating meat that was offered to idols. And then he laid down the guideline. And that was when in doubt about certain things, uh, your motive for doing them should be, should, should be concerned for your fellow believers. Now, we won't do anything, Paul said, that causes a weak brother to stumble. And this shows us that there's a limitation, as I mentioned last week, there's a limitation to our freedom. And, you know, uh, Chris, uh, 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 J. Vernon McGee, uh, McGee puts it like nobody else can. He said about our freedom this way. He says, you have a perfect right to swing your fist any way you want to. But where my nose begins, your liberty ends. <laughs> Paul stressed this guideline more than once in the Corinthian letter. In 1 Corinthians six twelve, Paul said, all things are lawful for me. But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Also in 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, he said, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. And then he said in 1 Corinthians 10.23, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. They don't build this up. Paul goes on to say <clears throat> that no man should look out just for his own good, but every man should seek the good of his neighbor. And this is why Christianity, or should I say Christian liberty, has its limitations. But here now, Paul is going to show us this matter of Christian liberty in another way. He's going to discuss his own right as an apostle, his official right. And then he's going to discuss his right to be supported by the church. And he had the right to expect the church to take care of him and, and, and all of his needs as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he uses these material on these personal matters to illustrate Christian liberty. First of all, Paul defends his official right as an apostle. Paul was used to having to defend himself, that is his apostleship, because he'd go to many places and he'd be challenged by many people who know who gives you the right to say these things who who sent you and you know you know and so he was challenged wherever he went and so he begins now uh in defending himself and showing his authority based on verse one beginning with verse one i should say and paul says in verse one am i not an apostle am i not am i not free have i not seen jesus christ our lord are you not my work in the Lord? So again, the rhetorical question, and again, deserving a yes answer. He says, am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus Christ with my, with my, own, my own eyes? He says, is it not because of my work that you are in the Lord, that you're a Christian? Now, some Corinthians were questioning Paul's authority and, 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 and his rights as an apostle. So what does he do? He gives them his qualifications. You know, he says, I've actually seen Jesus. I've actually talked with Jesus. It's Jesus who called me to the ministry. He's the one who made me an apostle. So these qualifications <clears throat> make the advice that he gives in this letter more reliable. And in 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, Paul defends his discipleship in a lot more detail. And we'll see that in the, you know, as we, we go ahead in, in, uh, in, the, in the books of First and Second Corinthians. And the way this question is written in the Greek, again, this one in chapter, uh, verse 1 here, the way it's written in the Greek, it demands a positive answer. It demands a yes answer. He says, don't I have as much 
uh, freedom as anybody else? Yes. He had the freedom of all Christians whose redemption is based on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, am I not an apostle? Yes, you are an apostle. Haven't I seen our Lord Jesus with my own eyes? Yes, which was a qualification for Paul being an apostle. He says, isn't my work because of my hard work that you are in the Lord? Yes. So the Corinthian Christians were proof of Paul's apostleship. Their lives were changed by Paul through the preaching of the gospel, which was proof that God was using Paul in a powerful way. Now, the question is, Paul's life was influencing people as a Christian. Does our life, does your life influence other people? Because it should as a believer. You can be an instrument that God uses to change somebody's life, to help others grow spiritually. And if you, just, if you just give yourself to God and you let him use you and let you make him effective or make you effective, you will have an influence on other people's lives. Verse 2. Paul says, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul says, even if others think I'm not an apostle, I certainly am to you. Why? Because you're living proof that I am the Lord's apostle. So as far as the Corinthian church goes, he didn't didn't have to offend his, his discipleship or his apostleship. It was obvious to the Christians there that he was an apostle. Verses three through six. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do, other, as, as do also other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? It's as if Paul now was in a courtroom and he was being charged concerning his apostleship. And here he's giving his defense to those who examine him, those who are questioning his authority. So, and what's his defense? He says, well... You know, do I have no right to eat and drink? You know, to live in your homes and share your meals? As an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul had the right to eat and to drink. He had that liberty, but that liberty is regulated. And also it's restricted and reduced by others. Again, his concern for others. He made a pretty bold statement in chapter 8, verse 13, when he said, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If whatever I do, Paul says, makes my brother stumble, I won't do it, whether it's eating meat or drinking or whatever it might be. He had the right to eat meat, but he wasn't going to if it made his brother stumble. So Paul uses as an example of giving up, uh, uses himself as an example of giving up personal rights. And, you know, many times when we stand up for our rights, we, we, we become a bad witness. You know, hey, I was lying before you, or hey, I was there first, or, or whatever that so-called right might be. As we stand up for it and argue for it and, and, and you know, make a scene over it, uh, we, we don't make a good witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and, and basically, we don't have rights. As a Christian, we're a bond servant of Jesus Christ. We're a slave of Christ in a good way. We're a bond servant. Bond servants have no rights. They, are, they, they, they come at the, at the beck and call of their master. They we belong totally to Jesus Christ. He calls the shots. He sends me where I need to go and he tells me when to stop. And he says, and he says come, I come. 
So again, he's, he's the Lord and master of my life. Again, it, it's, it's, it's what it is when we come to Jesus Christ. But Paul has the right to hospitality, he says. He says, I have a right to be married. I have a right to win people to Jesus Christ. But, he says, when you're, but, but when you're focused on Jesus, living for Jesus, your rights become secondary. They become less important. Now, that's free will. You see, being able to do something and then choose not to do it, that's free will. But if you can't do something, you don't do it. There's no free will in that. But if you're able to do something and choose not to do it, that's a show of your free will. Now, the other apostles were married. And when they'd go out, they would take their wives with them. And so the churches didn't just support the apostle who came, but they also took care of his wife as well. They would provide for both the apostle and his wife. Paul says, don't we have, him and Barnabas, don't we have the right to take along a believing wife, just like the other apostles, like the brothers of our Lord, you know, and Peter? Now, the brothers of our Lord, James and Jude, were also apostles in the early church with Peter. He says, we have the same rights that they do. Paul said, I can do this. I can be married. I could have a wife if I want to. And it would be right to be taken care of by the churches where we minister. But Paul chose not to have a wife because he felt his ministry would be limited and it would be hindered. Paul says, I have the right to take a wife with me. I have that freedom. He says, but I have made a choice to stay single. Paul was a forerunner in the mission field. And his way of living was very rugged. It was, very, it was a very hard life. And so he made the choice of, of staying single so that would, whatever was required of him, he could do and, and, and do it freely and, and even with the hardships and all and wouldn't have to worry about a, a family being there and, and you know, having those thoughts and those uh, worries about taking care of the family. So he's saying that he and Barnabas could stay home if they wanted to. In other words, Paul says, we don't have to go out. We don't have to be missionaries. And he says, our salvation wouldn't be affected one bit if we stayed home. In other words, we are apostles. God has called us to the ministry. We're exercising our ministry. Don't we have the right, he says, to be supported like the other apostles who were supported in the ministry? He said, is it only me and Barnabas who have to work to support ourselves? And now Paul's going to get right to this matter of paying the preacher. Look at verses 7 through 9. And he goes on to say, Whoever goes to war at his own expense. In other words, who goes to war? Who, do they pay for it themselves? He said, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? You see, in those days, an ox was used to tread the corn. The ox would be tied to a horizontal wheel, and that ox would just go around in a circle, uh, uh, separating as he walked over the grain, he would separate the grain from the chaff. And then the chaff would be tossed up with a winnowing fork, as you read it in the gospel. And when you toss up the, 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 the wheat, the chaff would be blown away by the wind, 
and the heavier part of the, of the wheat, which was a wheat kernel itself, would fall to the ground. And, of course, that's what the, the farmer wanted to keep was, was, the, was the grain, the wheat itself. And the chaff would be blown away. But God said, God said as, that, as that ox was going around and trampling, you know, separating the chaff from the wheat, he said, you're not to put a muzzle on that ox who's treading out the grain. Because, you see, the ox was doing the work. So the ox was allowed to eat the grain as he was doing the work. And that's how God took care of the ox. And Paul says there, God made that law. All right, to take care of the ox. And then he says here, do you think that was God's main concern? Do you think God was thinking just about the oxen when he made this law? The answer was no. The application is that the preacher is not to be muzzled. He's to be fed for his work. Here's a great illustration of of what Paul was speaking about here. There was a preacher in Kentucky, and he rode a very fine, beautiful horse, beautiful horse. But the preacher himself was a a very scrawny guy. And one day, one of his church officers asked him this question, which had been a matter of discussion. Him and the other officer, they'd been talking about it. He says, how is it, preacher, that your horse is so fine and so good looking and you're such a scrawny fella? The preacher answered, well, I'll tell you. I feed my horse and you are the ones who feed me. (laughs) Yikes. God says, don't muzzle the ox working for you. And Paul applies that principle to pastors and teachers. Now, God doesn't just take care of the oxen. He takes care of of his ministers of the gospel. And Paul is saying that he's an apostle who has fed others. He has a right to be fed. Verses 10 and 11. Or Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written that he who plows should plow in hope and he who threshes in hope should be partakers of this of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is a great thing if we reap your material things. Paul says, wasn't he also speaking to us, not only oxen, but to the ministers of the gospel? Of course he was. Just as farm workers who plow fields and thresh the grain expect to share in that harvest, he says Christian workers should be paid by those that they serve. We have planted good spiritual seed among you, he says, and is it too much to ask in return for simple food and clothing? Paul mentions this also again in Galatians. If somebody has blessed you spiritually, then you should share your material blessing with, blessings with them, Paul says. And here's a good principle to follow. You should support the place where you get your blessing, where you're getting the blessing. And, you know, many times, you know, people in, in their tithes and their offerings... They don't give to the church that they're going to where they're getting blessed. They will give it to a paraministry or, or, or a favorite ministry that they see on TV or somewhere else. And then, you know, they'll give, you know, most of the time their tithe or, or offering to them. And then whatever they give to their church where they're getting fed or blessed. The church where you're getting fed, you're getting blessed is where you are to give your, your tithe and your offering. And then again, whatever you have left over, God moves on your heart to get, you give it to those other ministries, the most prayer ministries, you know, wherever God might lead you to do that. You know, it's like if you went to a restaurant, man, you got served good food and, and you got good service. You wouldn't walk down the street and tip the waiter or the restaurant next door. 
But again, this is the, Paul, the, 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 the example that Paul is, no, is using. No, you would tip the one where you were served well. And yet many people do this sort of thing uh, with their spiritual food. They get their blessings, their spiritual blessings in one place, and yet they give their offerings in another place. Jesus said that the workers deserve their wages. In Luke 10, 7, Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul says the same things. And he suggests that the church be sure to pay their Christian workers. And we as a church, we as a body, we have the responsibility to take care of our, of our ministers of the gospel, our pastors, teachers, our, our spiritual leaders, whoever they might be. And it's our duty to see to it that those who serve us in the ministry are fairly and adequately taken care of. Verse 12. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, Paul says, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says, if you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have even a greater right to be supported? Yes. We, but, but Paul says, yet we've never used this right. Paul said, we'd, we'd rather put up with anything than put an obstacle in the way of the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul has a right to be supported for his work, he says. And yet, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to do anything that would hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't receive any salary. He supports himself by, by working a trade. He, he made tents. Today, we know, and we've seen them over the years, a lot of religious swindlers who make a merchandise out of teaching the word of God, out of, out of preaching the gospel. And they make a merchandise of the gospel of Christ. There's no doubt about it. But... It is God's plan that those who have a spiritual ministry are to be supported by those who benefit from it. Verses 13 and 14. Paul says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? He goes on to say in verse 14, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. He says, don't you know that those who work in the temple get their meals from the food that's brought to the temple as offerings? He says, and those who serve at the altar get, a, get a, uh, again, a share of the sacrificial offerings? He says, in the same way, he says, the Lord gave orders that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Again, Paul said, this is God's plan. And it's not wrong for the minister who has been a blessing to his people to be supported by the people. When people receive a blessing, for the most part, they will support the place where they are getting blessed. Verse 15, Paul goes on to say, But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, notice that it should be done so to me, for it would be better for me to die than that, than that anyone should uh, make my boasting void. Paul says, you know, though, these, though I have the right to these things, he said, yet I've never used any of these rights. And he says, I'm, I'm not writing this to you to suggest that I'd like to start now receiving any pay. In fact, he said, I'd rather die than lose my distinction of preaching without charge. You see, Paul didn't take a salary. He could say that the church <clears throat> in Corinth wasn't supporting him. He did anything. I'm sorry, he didn't receive anything from them. Paul supported himself by making tents. And as, as part of their pay, the priests in the temple would receive 
parts of the offerings as, the, as their food. And these verses here concerning Paul's rights and the church's responsibility, they have a two-part challenge for the church today. All right? First, the church must support its workers in a fair, reasonable way. That's the church's responsibility. Second, Christian workers must not let their attitude about pay and benefits hinder the gospel. It should not be, again, uh, the, the church should, should, whatever they get, make them able to, to live on it. And yet the, the one receiving should make the, the, the amount the reason for preaching the gospel. And, and I believe with all my heart, when, when that person's called, and, and that, that God will, knows the man's need, the woman's needs, and he will take care of them. And, and, I, and, and Kathy and I noticed that in, in our own calls in the ministry, that God, you know, God, you know, we, we, we don't say, hey, this is, you know, hey, this is what I want. You know, when I, uh, when Kathy and I went to Golden Springs and Pastor Raul asked us to come on staff, and we, Kathy and I said, look, I don't know what they're going to offer us. I don't know what, you know, it's going to be. But you know what? We're going to accept it. We're going to take it because we felt this is what God's call was in our lives. And so when Pastor Raul and Pastor Dale, you know, called me in and said, blah, 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 this is what, you know, I, I was just, okay. We were blessed out of our socks. God took care of us, um, you know, and he always does. And again, God knows your needs. And so when he calls you, he says, I'm going to take care of you. And, and it's easy to, 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 to read that and to tell others about that. But when it comes to your own life, it, you know, sometimes it's hard to, you know, to, to accept it or believe it. But you got to. And, you, and it's a blessing when you do because you'll see God, God is more than faithful. And God takes care of you. And he has all these years. Never told anybody how much I needed. The, the, the board decides that. And when God puts it on their heart, and it, it's always been a blessing. God's always taken care of Kathy and I. So, again, that's what Paul's looking at here. That's what he's preaching here. Again, it's too easy for the desire of wanting money to enter into a person's mind and to distract them from serving. It distracts them from serving. Ministers need Paul's attitude, and it is a willingness not to demand their rights if it would hinder the gospel. Verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity, it is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I love that. Paul says, preaching the good news isn't something that I can boast about. He says, I'm compelled to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the gospel. And, and I think anybody who's doing it for the right reasons... It, it's the same thing. I personally couldn't think of doing anything other than teaching God's word. There are many times when I've questioned, what am I doing here? You know, is it really the call of God? But I go on because I believe, I, ha, I feel an inner drive and also I love to teach and preach God's word. And, and, I, and I, I remember the very first time that I had an opportunity. It's when Pastor Raw was in the Kung Fu studio way back in, I think it used to be a Gap clothing store. And then during the, the, after the Kung Fu demonstrations, Pastor Al would ask those that were, you know, Christians that he knew to, to teach a, a Bible study. And so Pastor Al said, Joe, would you, would you do the next Bible study after the class? You know, and I, and I, I wanted to, and God had, I had felt like God had wanted me to do this. 
And so I studied maybe a week or two, and I was preparing, and I'm looking, and I said, okay, I got this thing all down, man. And I get up there, and about five minutes of talking, I was done. I thought, oh, my goodness. I was staring at them, and they were staring at me, and Rawls staring at me off of the side. I'm going, what am I doing here? I thought, oh, these people are thinking, oh, is that it? Pastor Rawls thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, Pastor Rawls thinking, oh, man, that's... Okay, anyway, and so that, I just, I, I walked away going, I can't, I can't do this. I'm never going to do this again. I don't want to do I just embarrassed everybody, and I just, it was just horrible. And so, all right, so I just, but then I thought, and I want to, I feel like this is what I'm, I, I want to do. And, and so I got another chance, and, and that wasn't as bad, but um, I, Kathy and I were at a marriage retreat, and I'm sitting up front there, and, and as I'm teaching, I am sweating like, I was, I, I think these people think I must be on some drug or something because it's, it's dripping down my chin and I'm sweating and I'm going, oh Lord, and I'm, you know, and I'm, and I'm trying to get beyond this sweat and these people look at me going, what's wrong with that guy? Why is he sweating like this? And like, never again, Lord, I just can't do this. And, and Satan just beats you up and he just tells you, hey, you see, I told you, uh, but I still, you know, God just kept, and, and God, Raul was so gracious, he kept asking me, kept asking me. So I kept going, and God just, every time just, you know, he enabled me to, to continue to go. But it's, it was like Paul, you just, you know, you just feel like there's nothing else that you want to do. And he was driven by that desire to do what God wanted him to do, using his gifts for God's glory. And we all have gifts, all of you do. And we'll see that as we go further along in, in Paul's teaching but, you know, you get asked, what special gifts do you have? You know, and using for his glory. Are you motivated like Paul to honor God with your gifts? Verse 17 and 18. For if I do this unwillingly, Paul says, notice, for if I do this unwillingly, I have a reward. I'm sorry, if, or if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ <clears throat> without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul says, <clears throat> it was, if I was doing this of my own free will, he said, then I deserve payment. But God has chosen me, and God has given me this sacred trust. He says, I have no choice. He says, what then is my pay? And here it is, the satisfaction that I get from preaching the good news without charging anyone, never demanding my rights as a preacher. Paul did not preach the gospel for any other reason than he loved God and, and loved the people. And yet God promised him a reward and he would not be disappointed. Verse 19. For though I am free... From all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He says, this means I'm not bound to obey anybody, any people, just because they pay me. He said, yet I've become a servant of everyone so that I can bring them to Christ. He had the freedom to make himself a servant. Now he gives a very familiar testimony of his own ministry, which I know that we've all heard, verse 20 through 23. Look at what he says. He says, and to the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, 
that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. That is not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are, uh, who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Paul says, man, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those that, that, who followed the Jewish laws, I too lived under that law. He said, even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. He said, and I too live apart from that law so I can bring them to Jesus. But I, he says, I don't ignore the law of God. He said, I obey the law of Christ. And when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weaknesses. Why? Because I want to bring them, the weak, to Christ. He says, yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything that I can to save some. He says, I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Paul says, hey, I'm doing all of this. Why? Because I'm running a race, as we'll see in the next few verses. I'm doing all of this because I'm running a race, and I'm running a race like an athlete. What is he running for? A prize. Let's look at that now, verses 24 through 27. Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, Paul says, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul gives us an example here of an athlete. He was driven by a desire to win people to Jesus Christ. But he knew that private personal experience can't be separated from what he says i can't say one thing and not do something to make that goal come to pass so he gives an illustration of discipline and self-sacrifice that includes public effectiveness and personal spiritual development every two years the greek games were held at or near the city of corinth those games were usually leaping discus throwing racing boxing and wrestling and whatever contest you were involved, whatever contest you were in, involved four qualities that were necessary in order to win. First of all, a winner must exert himself, give his all to the fullest extent. Extent He's to run in, in such a way that you will win. That's what Paul says in verse 24. Secondly, a winner must accept <clears throat> the demands of training. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate. They're disciplined. They have self, uh, strict self-control in all things. That's what he says in verse 25. And for the Greek athlete, this period of intense training, it lasted for 10 months. And during these 10 months, the competitors lived a strict life, a life of consistent exercise and strict self-discipline, where they would not eat or, or do anything that would weaken them. They abstain from everything that would weaken or fatten the body. And what's meant here is that the competitor would stay away from self-gratification. 
whatever they felt like having, whatever they were craved, they would crave to eat, but no, it's sweet or it's fattening or, you know, it's going to weaken my body. It's going to, you know, not help me in this competition. He'd stay away from it. Paul also points out that these athletes received a, a reward that's perishable. He says, what's the prize? Well, they're competing for, for a crown that's perishable. A, a, a wreath, it was a crown that was, it was a wreath crown that was made out of pine leaves or ivy or parsley, parsley leaves that would soon wilt and wither and be worthless. But the Christian is after an imperishable crown. Verse 25 says, that will last for all eternity. Then a third feature of the winner was, was certainty of direction. You need to know where you're going. The Christian didn't run with uncertainty. Nor did the Christian fight like somebody who beats the air, Paul says in verse 26. In the Christian race, Paul knew the goal. And he knew it well. And he knew the road that led to it. In spiritual fighting, notice, he uses his fists as one in, who is sincere about that fight that he's in. And he doesn't miss. He says his, he lands his blows. They hit the target. And to Paul, the Christian life was not an exercise in like just swinging away at the air with, with no, no target in sight. It wasn't religious, religious shadow boxing. It was a raging combat that, de- that demanded your best effort, putting all that you have into it. And the fourth and the last condition for winning is a consistent mastery. Notice Paul said in verse 27, I, 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 Paul said, I discipline my body. I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. The word discipline means to buffet. And it meant to hit under the eye to disable the one that you're fighting. All right? And he was training to, uh, to do what he needed to do. The biggest difficulty to winning the race is ourself. We are the biggest difficulty in winning the race. Paul didn't say that was the flesh. It's this total person that has, has to be brought under control. My mind, my thoughts, my cravings, my, the things that I want to do has to be brought under control. Complete subjection. Again, he uses the word buffet, which means discipline, which means to strike heavily in the face so as to render black and blue. It, it, figuratively speaking, he would beat himself black and blue to keep himself in, under subjection, to keep his body under subjection. The phrase to bring into subjection means to lead captive. Paul wasn't just telling others to follow the rules. He was competing too. He was competing too. Again, he was beating himself black and blue. It means he hit under the eye. He was just blackening his eyes in this fight to keep himself in, you know, in subjection. We know, or sorry, he knew well. He knew well how terrible it would be for somebody who had told him the rules for winning. Here, Paul, here's, here's, here's what you have to do to win this prize. And then to be rejected for it for not following the rules. We've been given the rules, right? We've been given what we need to do to win the prize. We have it with us. And then on that day, when we go to receive the crown, to be rejected for not following the rules will be devastating because we didn't follow the rules. So in closing... The Christian lives on a spiritual level. 
that is above personality. I'm sorry, personal liberty. The Christian lives on a spiritual level above uh, personal liberty when, number one, he's driven by a great call, verses 16 and 18. Second, when when he's motivated by a great compassion, verse 19. Third, disciplined by a master plan, verses 24 through 26. And last, overshadowed by a wholesome fear, verse 27. Paul's given us the way. He's given us the way to victory. And it's through God's word. And it's all there. But shame on us. The Bible says that the the, the road to heaven is narrow. And not many go there. And the road to hell is wide. And many, many go there. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And Father, help us to understand that this walk this Christian walk, Father, that leads us to heaven's gates. Father, it's a fight. It's a struggle all the way. And yet, Lord, you've given us the requirements needed to get there. But it requires that we are disciplined. The Father, that we, we, that we keep our body, our body in subjection, Lord, that we buffet the body. We buffet our desires. We buffet our thoughts. They're not good. We buffet the things that we want that will hamper us, that will harm us from reaching our goal, Father. And it's a battle till the day we die, Lord. We will not win that battle this side of the grave, God. But like Paul says, he presses toward the mark of that high calling of seeing Jesus Christ, Lord. That's our prize. That's the imperishable crown that we're looking for, God. Help us, Lord, to get there. Help us to get there. And Father, again, you've given us all that we need. from God. We have your word. We have the tools and the resources of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, God. So, Lord, we are without excuse, as Paul said in Romans 1. We thank you, Lord, for your love, your grace. We thank you that and you've given us all the resources that we need to win this battle. Father, we thank you for the offering that we will receive today, Lord. We thank you for your, your loving hand, your, your full hand, your faithfulness, God, in taking care of us, Lord. We thank you that we don't have to beg and that we're not going to beg, God. It's your church. You know what needs to be done. And God, you will take care of us as you see fit. We thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.